This Washington Post Live podcast is presented in partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation, advancing new frontiers of science, data, policy, and innovation to solve global challenges related to health, food, power, and equity and economic opportunity. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former U.S. Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz, U.N. Undersecretary General Vera Songwa, San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo, and New Bedford, Massachusetts Mayor John Mitchell join the Post to discuss energy poverty, the scope of the problem, and current solutions underway. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post, and I'm very pleased to welcome today two experts on energy policy. My first guest is Dr. Vera Songway, UN Undersecretary General and an expert on Africa, and also former US Energy Secretary, Secretary uh, Ernest Moniz. A very warm welcome to you both. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Francis, for having us. Thank you. We're delighted to have you both. So let me start with you, if I may, Dr. Songwei. Could you give us a global snapshot of uh, energy poverty, where things stand, what populations are affected, and what the kind of repercussions are for gender equity and employment in the areas of the world This is most that are most affected? Thank you. Thanks again for, uh, for having us. I think to just talk about what uh, the Rockefeller Foundation has done, and under the leadership, of course, of uh, Secretary Moniz, is looking at how we can end uh, this global partnership and energy poverty. And as you asked, and rightly so, what is the global landscape of it? Let me start with my own continent. Um, and I am in Ethiopia right now. Africa accounts for only 3.2% of the 2,700 petrawatt hours of electricity generated. Asia Pacific, of course, is 47%. South Asia with India is only 5.8%. And I think that's why we're looking at it globally because it's Africa, but also South and Central America is 4.9%. So when you look at those three, Africa, 3.2%, India, 5.8%, and South and Central Africa, uh, America at just 4.9%, you see that there's still large swaths of the global uh, space that is energy poor. When we talk about it, and let's relate it a little bit to the COVID crisis today, and I think that is one of the reasons why the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, Harvard University wanted to do this together with the Economic Africa and many others who are on this commission, was to say, you know, one of the things that the COVID pandemic has shown us is that if we don't have energy, we can't even solve the health crises. On the continent, for example, we have a lot of hospitals which do not have enough access to energy. And so universal access is a critical part of what we are considering as part of the puzzle for ending uh, energy poverty. That means essentially looking at the whole stream of how you do both generation, transmission, and distribution. And I think one of the things that we have seen in this supply chain is that there is a fourth line in the distribution piece of the puzzle. And so a lot of the work that Professor Moniz, uh, Secretary Moniz has sort of championed has been around what we can do with this integrated distribution framework, which essentially says, how do you bring the whole system link the generation, link the transmission to the distribution, and ensure that we can get uh, to the last mile. Because low energy consumption across the globe cannot give us the kind of building forward better that we're looking for. We need less than 20% of uh, India, less than 5% of China has access in the rural areas to sustainable, affordable electricity. So this is, I think, a global uh, concern. And essentially what we're trying to understand is how one can do it in a way that particularly 
crowds in the public sector, the private sector, and ensures that we have the right kind of regulation to do it in a way that is sustainable. So before we move on to secretary monies, which I'll do in a second, I just want to ask you about um, the, the people's lives. You mentioned, is this a big rural urban divide? And are we talking about people, you know, cooking on, uh, you know, with wood? How does it affect gender? Before I would sort of would like to get a, a sense of the personal impact before we move on to secretary monies. I'm actually glad you asked that question because we have 23 million women across the world, not just in Africa, but across the world who actually die from respiratory diseases every year because they're using poor cooking uh, devices and that's the energy uh, linkage. And so, yes, it is a rural urban divide as well. In many of the African countries, the same is true for South America and the same is true for South Asia. The cities tend to have 70% or more access to energy, the rural areas 20% or less access to energy and the women in particular. And this is where we're also looking at an inclusive, inclusive and more sustainable design for, to, for ending energy poverty, which ensures that we can protect the trees, for example. There's a lot of work that's going on to see how we can restore our green environment, particularly in Ethiopia where we are. But you can do that and ensure that that is going to be sustainable if women still need to go out and look for wood to cook. And so I think there is a whole other conversation and I'm sure that uh, Secretary Moniz will bring that in with gas and how we can do better and cleaner cooking stoves. So let's talk to, turn to you, Secretary Moniz. You're one of the co-chairs of the Global Commission to End Energy Poverty. Could you tell us a little about how the commission was formed, who the commissioners are? And, and are we talking, we've been talking about the developing world right now, but are we talking about a, a problem that is also in more developed countries around the world? Yes, uh, Francis. Um, uh, let me um, first make a couple of comments uh, expanding on what, uh, what Vera said. Uh, the, uh, as has already been hinted at, uh, we will be focusing on the commission first on electricity. We'll come back to that. But the cooking issue that you have raised uh, is so critical. There's a documentary recently out called Switch On that I would recommend. Uh, and it has a, a terrible, I mean, a, it's a terribly uh, emotional scene uh, in terms of uh, the medical requirements of women and children uh, suffering the respiratory consequences of, of indoor biomass uh, cooking. Uh, in fact, a doctor said that six uh, all of his uh, patients, uh, it was women and children uh, with respiratory illness. Uh, and until that is addressed, uh, and Vera basically, I'll be very explicit, uh, we cannot have women's empowerment. We cannot have uh, them engaged uh, in the in the economy uh, until these issues are, are resolved. So that that's very, very important. Now on the commission, uh, to, to go back to that, um, well, first of all, uh, there are three co-chairs, um, uh, myself uh, uh, with my hat at MIT, where the principal analysis was done, but uh, Rod Shah, who is the CEO of the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, uh, is a co-chair and Raj uh, particularly emphasizes uh, that the Rockefeller Foundation uh, supported this work because addressing energy poverty is a necessary condition for addressing poverty more, more generally. So, uh, so that really is, is the perspective uh, that, that he brought to the, to the table. Uh, the third uh, co-chair, uh, Akin um, uh, Adesima, is the president of the African Development Bank. Uh, and clearly, while uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is not the exclusive focus uh, of the commission, it's a major focus. And so the African Development Bank brings in that perspective of 
how are we going to uh, bring together the capital uh, to help the kinds of transitions uh, that we have. The commission was rounded out by many, many others I won't go into by name, but uh, for example, uh, investors in infrastructure like Africa 50, uh, but uh, government and quasi-government officials uh, who will have enormous uh, responsibilities, uh, which we'll come, perhaps come back to, uh, and um, a number of, uh, of individuals who have long experience uh, in, for example, uh, initiatives such as Power Africa, uh, which was uh, started in the uh, Obama administration to address the electricity and, and lighting needs uh, in, uh, in, in Africa specifically. But you're also right that the energy access issue is not one uh, just in developing countries. Uh, right. Clearly, right. that is the major focus. Uh, hundreds of millions of, of people without proper energy access. One could argue about a third of the global population without adequate energy services. But, you know, right here in the United States, frankly, if one goes to things like the um, Native American uh, uh, lands, uh, one finds a, a very, very disheartening uh, lack of, of, of energy services uh, in many cases. So this is a big problem. It's absolutely critical. And I would just say that as well, you mentioned uh, briefly uh, COVID. When the commission started uh, just over a year ago, I don't think any of us dreamed that today, because of the COVID uh, crisis, we probably have more people without electricity access than we had a year ago. Uh, because many who gained access, uh, uh, you know, these countries always uh, <laughs> catch the cold first when there's a global event. Uh, and the economic impact has led to many people uh, not being able to afford anymore the access that was so hard won uh, over these last years. Right. right. Dr. Sangwe, you're on this commission and the goal is universal electricity access, as we said. Um, that's going to involve partnerships between policymakers, utilities, investors. What do those partnerships look like? How are you moving towards them? And what are the barriers in different parts of the world? What are you up against? Um, we have done a couple of, actually, we're not up against as much as, uh, as it is trying to see whether we can bring the, the right coalitions together. And I think mm -hmm. first the, 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 the coalition and the commission is one of them. Uh, Secretary Moniz has already talked about the fact that we have the private sector, the public sector, and um, a lot of uh, some of civil society with us, and actually the academics um, as well. And I, I take, for example, a partnership that we have, for example, with Rest for Africa, which is under uh, the Enel Corporation um, and one of the the also the Global Investment for Sustainable Development Group that was set up by the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Essentially, that brings together a very substantial group of private sector investors with trillions of dollars interested in looking for investments in renewable energy. And when you look at, again, um, the African continent, only 2% of global new renewable energy capacity was installed in Africa over the last 10 years. So for all the conversations that we have around renewable energy, the drop in the cost of renewable energy and the need for more investment, Africa has only been able to attract 2% of that. And I think one of the things that we are now trying to do is understand what is it that is stopping or hindering those kinds of investments. A big part of it, and that's one of the things the commission talks about when they do 
the integrated development framework is essentially the fact that the distribution, the utility companies, because of not uh, the appropriate tariff adjustments, and that's your conversation, what are we up against? We're up against the need for affordable, accessible energy versus the need for you know, financing that is also affordable to build that energy. And, and I think one of the issues that we're talking about there is how can we do projects in local currency? When you do a, a, a hydroelectric power plant and it's financed in dollars, but the citizens, rural citizens most often are paying for that energy in local currency that is also subject to the variations of macroeconomic, the COVID crisis has led right. to many of our currencies depreciating. For example, it becomes very expensive. Hence, what Secretary Moniz was talking about, utilities cannot afford to pay any more of their PPAs. Those contracts get suspended, energy gets cut off. So we need to be able to find some way of doing reflective cost, uh, uh, cost and tariffs. But to do that, we need to move to more local currency financing of a lot of this investment that we're putting in place. Of course, the overall macroeconomic environment is quite an important one to attract more uh, foreign direct investment into those sectors. But another thing that we're doing and that the Commission has stressed and it's very important is building local technical assistance. And at the Economic Commission for Africa, what we're doing actually is, and we're partnering with the Commission now and Breast for Africa and others, is to launch what we're calling the Team Energy Africa, which is essentially bringing together all the African uh, uh, industrial manufacturers of energy together to say, what can we do? As a continental production, there's a team Europe. There is, of course, the Power Africa that was launched by the United States. And we're hoping that we can create a cluster in Africa that can respond to team Europe when they come or respond to Power Africa when they come under the DFC and others to say, you know, we have to do this in partnership. And probably when we do that, we can also then find local insurance companies on the continent that can buy down the cost of this investment. So I think it's a cluster of things. First, you need to bring in you know, continental producers. We're seeing that in, in, in India, right? We've talked about the low access in India, but increasingly because there are Indian suppliers of energy, Indian investors, captains of industry in the energy sector, we can see that access is actually increasing at a much faster rate. We believe that we should emulate something like that on the African continent and hopefully Latin America as well. Just before I move on, I want to ask specifically, is the one area in Africa, one small uh, model where things are working well that you're trying to broaden? Can you point to well, one Well, I think that, the, you know, the, 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 the attraction of uh, independent power producers on the continent has done really well. Many, many countries that have started that, Kenya, Senegal, of course, South Africa has been the leader in this. Um, we really see a lot of progress. We see a lot of investment. I think that, uh, again, uh, a project that was launched by the IFC but is now rallying many more is the solar power, uh, uh, solar power uh, project, which has been scaling solid. In Zambia, we have it now. In Senegal, we have it. In Morocco, we're doing something. I think one of the things that we've understood is standardization of these programs, whether they are large-scale programs or small mini-grid, off-grid programs, those quite well, because then you can standardize it. The investors know what to expect. The countries know what to offer, and it makes it much easier to close on those deals. Secretary uh, Moniz, could you talk to us about the, the technological advances, data analytics, and other progress that can make a big difference in this area? Well, certainly the uh, the te technology progress in uh, providing energy, uh, and in particular clean energy, uh, has been mm. very, 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 very dramatic. Uh, the uh, solar energy, wind energy, uh, including uh, the storage that one needs 
uh, to be able to use the, for example, the solar energy at night as opposed to uh, uh, during the day, uh, the uh, rapid cost reductions here, uh, I think, are going to provide uh, dramatic opportunities uh, to uh, have support uh, for African build out uh, quite rapidly uh, of the new the new energy uh, uh, technologies. Uh, but a couple of points I, I do want to emphasize. Um, uh, we have to recognize, and, and one of the one of the pillars really of of the of the commission's uh, work uh, has been that we cannot look at off grid and on grid solutions as kind of two different things. We need the integration uh, of on and off grid solutions because the issue it isn't about uh, ideology uh, in terms of uh, how one best to, uh, to 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 have distributed generation or the like. It's about universal access uh, and the universal access solutions are going to have to be looked at in an integrated way uh, with the combined urban uh, and uh, rural populations of these countries. Uh, technology is going to allow that to happen uh, more easily, but I think actually it's probably worth uh, stating that uh, just like everywhere in the world, the projections, the demographic projections are for continued uh, enormous urbanization uh, in uh, uh, in Africa. Uh, so uh, so I think we need to uh, not uh, have, you know, uh, uh, everything looks like a nail because I have a hammer. Uh, we have multiple technologies, multiple ways of integrating them using IT. You will you alluded uh, to IT, uh, for example, using IT. Uh, to to really serve the population that needs universal access. In saying that, uh, again, something you alluded to earlier, uh, Francis, uh, maybe we'll come back to it, but um, the reality is, and frankly, when I speak with Africans who are uh, very knowledgeable about the you know the developments in energy that are that are needed, that would include Vera, uh, the um, they all say that, look, we have to have in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, a real focus on economic development, on industrialization. And so that's going to require as well, uh, certainly for some considerable period, uh, uh, more internal utilization in Africa of the enormous natural gas fines that have been happening in both West and East, uh, East Africa. So um, I think we have to keep in mind the goals uh, economic development, universal access, and of course, as low carbon a trajectory uh, as can be uh, as can be realized in putting together a coherent solution. Uh, and again, universal access, integration of on and off grid, focus on development, and as Vera said, creating financially viable systems. Uh, to provide the uh, the electricity, the energy, uh, not with a short-term focus, but with a long-term focus, uh, all must come together. Uh, uh, and it'll be technology, but it'll also be things like uh, significant uh, uh, elevation and best practices, et cetera, uh, in terms of regulation. Uh, without stable, predictable regulation, it would be very hard for the kind of load-serving entities uh, that we need uh, to uh, uh, to really put in the capital investment 
uh, to serve the people's needs. So just quickly, if you can, and these are all big questions, tell me where the private sector fits in here. Um, how do we make sure that they act in the interests of broad development rather than their own interests? What's their role and uh, how do you regulate their uh, investment? Well, the, 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 the private sector, first of all, they're absolutely essential because otherwise uh, it'll be very hard to see the capital accumulation uh, that one needs uh, to, uh, uh, to to realize the development that, that we are uh, uh, hoping for. Uh, but again, um, I don't see it's no different in Africa or anywhere else. Uh, if it's private capital coming in, uh, some certainty for a substantial period, call it 20 years, uh, a concession uh, being awarded, for example, uh, with specific milestones uh, for universal access, uh, reliable access to uh, to electricity, that has to come. And frankly, and, and Vera could comment on this uh, uh, probably more expertly than I, but uh, let's just say those conditions are very uneven at the moment. Uh, uh, in uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, I think we need to bring uh, the best practices uh, uh, which have been demonstrated in, in various places uh, to bear. For example, one of the recommendations uh, of the commission uh, is to establish an African school of regulation, uh, maybe at one of the universities in, in Africa, for example, uh, and really uh, bring a kind of cutting edge experience of regulation uh, across the globe uh, to bear uh, so that there can be more uniformity. Uniformity across countries will also encourage other important developments, such as regional power pools, where several countries can come together regionally uh, and provide more efficient, more reliable, uh, more affordable uh, electricity uh, as, as a regional effort. Clearly, if you have different policies, different rules uh, across boundaries, that becomes very, very difficult. So, so there's a lot to do, but um, uh, we are, by the way, we're very encouraged uh, in terms of progress towards this uh, regulatory school, for example, uh, being founded. We'll, we'll see, but, uh, but it's looking quite promising. We're getting a little bit short of time, but I would like to be able to ask you a couple of questions that have been sent in by uh, readers, and I'll start with you, Dr. Sangwe, if I may. So I'm going to read this. This is Barry Moore from Virginia who asks, how would you characterize China's economic influence and impact in Africa? No, thank you for that question. And let me use that question to answer uh, a little bit of what uh, we're talking about, right. about gas. Um, China, uh, Africa has decided, you know, we are going to go to net zero. Um, however, between now and getting to net zero, Africa still needs to grow. We need to you know, ensure that our economies have the right energy production capacity to grow. One of the areas where, we, you know, Africa has an abundance, of course, of raw material for energy production is, ga is, is, is gas and hydro. Hydro, China is one of the leading, uh, uh, um, you know, builders of hydropower, by the way. And so I think that one of the things that we're doing is working with China, working with the French, working with the Americans to see how we can ensure that we do build the right kinds of hydropower plants on the continent, but also that we begin to I think we have a little interruption in our connection, which we're trying to rebuild at the moment. So please stay with us. 
Well, Francis, maybe I could inject a little comment yes. on China as we're Please waiting do. for Vera Please to do. come back. Uh, and I think that um, uh, one of the issues uh, is that uh, I think as m many countries, uh, Vera mentioned uh, several, uh, come in and, and uh, be part of the build of the infrastructure, uh, that I think it's very important that those companies a lot to build up local capacity, uh, use uh, local workforces. Frankly, I think uh, China may be not quite there uh, in terms of uh, the necessary building of indigenous capacity. I think we have Dr. Sangwei back with us. Did you want to finish your, uh, you know? Okay, we do not. Thank you both very much for joining us today. I'm sorry about that little interruption at the end of the, the segment, but it was a fascinating conversation. I will be back in a few minutes. We hand it to the Rockefeller Foundation our partners in a few minutes. Thank you very much to you both. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Elise Labatt of American University, and today we're talking about the Global Commission to End Energy Poverty, founded by the Rockefeller Foundation to galvanize global action behind the acceleration of delivering sustainable and cost-effective electricity access to hundreds of millions of underserved homes and businesses. I'm joined by Ashvin Dayal, who leads the Rockefeller Foundation's Global Power and Climate Initiative, and Rob Stoner, Deputy Director for Science and Technology at the MIT Energy Initiative, which is working with Rockefeller to produce high-quality research data and evidence behind these goals. Ashvin, let's start with you and talk about the ties between poverty and the lack of access to energy. I hear you at Rockefeller call access to energy the so-called global thread that kind of weaves together economic growth, human development, and environmental sustainability. Well, thank you, Elise. Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you think about um, the relationship between poverty and economic development and the importance of energy as, as a sort of a driver and an enabler of that has only grown in an increasingly interconnected world. If you think about life as a farmer 50 years ago versus today, the pathway to upward mobility to gain more productivity, you need to have access to the cold chain for, for, uh, for cold storage for your produce or for machinery for processing. So, you know, electricity and access to electricity has become a sort of increasingly important facet of economic mobility, of economic inclusion. And when we look at the sort of Venn diagram between energy poverty and poverty, it's increasingly overlapping. And that's why we say, you know, if we really want to end poverty in the 21st century, we're going to have to end energy poverty. Uh, the question then becomes, how do you do that? And, and this is where we see just such enormous transformational potential today, especially because of what, what, what changes we've seen with technology and price of technologies over the last 10, 15 years, just opening up a much more diverse set of options, especially for low-income economies that can't necessarily afford to build out a traditional centralized grid everywhere and as quickly as it's needed in, in, in today's economic context. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't make the connection between poverty and, and access to electricity. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But Rob, you're focused on identifying and addressing the barriers to achieving 
universal and economically impactful electrification. So tackling the system that prevents energy access and delivering that roadmap to affordable and reliable energy, it's got to be, I would think, a kind of multi-sectoral mission. It is. I mean, the electricity system is gigantic, uh, even in even in small countries with small electricity systems, and it spans a, a range of sub-industries um, focused largely on the African problem. And Africa is distinctive because many of the utilities, in fact, almost all of the electric utilities are structurally insolvent. They lose money on every kilowatt hour of power they sell um, in aggregate. That that's a that's a very challenging problem, and the reason that happens is that the people they're trying to serve at the other end of the line um, are poor by and large and can't afford to pay the price, and and this political pressure that that um, forces the electricity companies to to drop what they can charge, so-called tariffs, uh, which creates a lot of distress for them as well, and so a lot of the challenge that that we're we're dealing with of of providing electricity access to everyone is improving the business condition of those electric utilities and and that means that you have to take advantage of opportunities to use novel technologies like solar for example um, that's finding its way into rural communities to make it less expensive for the utilities to serve people who live in far-flung areas it's sort of the the low or rather the last mile problem that we used to talk about in telecommunications, and it's very much the problem in the electricity system. So Ashvin, this brings us to the work of the Global Commission to End Energy Poverty, or GCEEP, as, as we like to shorthand it. So as you work <laughs> towards an inclusive and equitable recovery from COVID-19, I know the commission has prioritized universal electricity access for economic development. And talk to me about the economic case for such a massive investment in energy as a key priority when the needs across the board for COVID recovery are so great. And that's a very fair question. And I think you know, clearly the needs in the context of the COVID-19 crisis are enormous and they're diverse. We see the challenge um, particularly through two major lenses. There is obviously the immediate and, and ongoing health crisis. Um, this is not just a crisis for today. It is going to take several years to see the rollout of an adequate treatment regime and vaccines across the world, um, especially in some of the least developed markets or in, in groups who traditionally tend to get excluded from access to vaccines. Um, and that's, an, that's a critical, critical issue that we have to address. But if you think about how the COVID crisis has been experienced in so many parts of the developing world, it has been experienced primarily as an economic crisis. When you've seen um, a, you know, economies locking down for weeks on end, when you've seen a massive contraction in, in, in industrial and economic activity, when you've seen access to markets disrupted, the data that we've been gathering with partners around the world for the last seven, eight, nine months has been, you know, frankly, quite depressing and distressing. India a few months, a couple of months ago announced a 22% reduction in GDP. And we've seen this play out in the most sort of um, impactful way for some of the poorest people around the world. The bank, the World Bank, using an expanded definition of poverty is estimating that as many as half a billion people could go back into poverty as a result of this crisis. So when you look at the crisis from its broader economic perspective, the question then becomes, well, why energy? Well, energy because 
it is a key part of the economic system that can create opportunities in the near term and then create lasting economic growth. Um, as Rob mentioned, we've seen enormous innovation in technologies like solar um, storage that makes distributed renewables um, an increasingly viable part of the ecosystem of electrification. Now, these systems can be rolled out quite quickly. In order to roll them out in local areas, they take they create jobs in the near term for construction and installation. They create ongoing jobs in terms of maintenance. And of course, they support productive use activities within local economies, whether it's for agricultural processing or off-farm activities. So what we believe at this point is that this is an investment not just in, 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 in addressing a crisis for today and tomorrow, but it is, as has often been the case in the moments of great crisis, an investment in the kind of infrastructure that's going to serve us for the next 20, 30, 40 years and allow hundreds of millions of people to lift themselves out of situations of poverty or underdevelopment. And, and that's why we think energy at the heart of a response to COVID is, is so critical and so important. So, so, Rob, the commission is advancing MIT's concept of this integrated distribution framework. Talk to us about these guiding principles that are informing the solutions for um, delivering affordable electricity and, and this kind of investment based on viability on, of distribution and, and grid and um, renewable energy. Well, right. So our key word here is integration, and we're talking about integration in several dimensions, integrating across technologies, certainly, and off-grid as well as on-grid technologies uh, is, is part of that, integrating across urban and rural communities, uh, integrating across different parts of, of the value chain involved in electricity. The idea with the integrated distribution framework is pretty straightforward, and and will remind people of what works in utilities that, that we have in the advanced economies. Uh, and that is to say a, a recognition that you have to serve everybody. You can't pick and choose. And it's especially important in developing countries because one way to make a utility uh, uh, financially viable very quickly is to drop all the poor customers. They're expensive to serve and focus instead just on commercial and industrial customers. But, but we've, we've insisted in this integrated distribution framework that they have to focus on everybody. Uh, and, and, and furthermore, that, that they have to combine, as I was saying, the use of on and off grid technologies in a way that makes sense. Um, one of the challenges with, with off grid technologies is that they're typically sold by small entrepreneurial companies um, who have a good idea for, for delivering them. But there's no guarantee when they sell them to a to a, a rural farmer, for example, that they're going to be there in 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 the future uh, to to continue to provide service. And so we've talked about integrating that kind of off-grid delivery within the sphere of the regulated utility. In other words, bringing these businesses together in a way. That doesn't mean integrating them into a single business necessarily, but into a single enterprise that collectively has an obligation to serve everyone for the long term. That means that if the off-grid provider fails, the utility that, that it is working uh, or it is integrated with in, in providing service takes over as the provider of last resort. And that's critically important when you're talking about ensuring service uh, because 
delivering on value uh, in the economy really requires uh, reliability of service and cost. So this is this is an opportunity to try to use new technologies and the energy of different parts of the private sector to make the utility work effectively. And we're running out of time, but I know you have some first action countries, and I want to make sure that are, that are recommended for full or partial implementation of this IDF. I want to make sure we mention those are Rwanda, Uganda, Colombia, Nigeria, and the Odisha state in India. Um, and we'll be looking for more information on that. Um, Ashvin, as we close, government and philanthropic groups like Rockefeller are recognizing the ties between poverty and lack of access to energy, but we've seen it, it kind of collective action is, is slow and incremental. How do we engage with these governments and global institutions to support adoption of these principles and convince them that universal access to electricity um, is to those in need is the single best way to fight poverty? Well, I mean, I think often the case isn't that governments need convincing, they need resources and they need support. Um, you know, there are 800 million people who are unconnected um, to the grid. There are probably about 3 billion people who lack access to reliable um, energy or electricity services, and that's holding them back. It's suppressing their economic opportunities. So I think, you know, what it really needs is a, is a sort of a, a much more comprehensive public-private partnership where we can bring concessional capital, we can bring subsidies into play along with opportunities for the private sector to come in and invest. Let's not forget that no country in the world has achieved universal electrification without heavy investment by the public sector and unlocking opportunities for the private sector. And we really need to adopt the same principles um, as we look at some of the developing economies that this report uh, speaks to. And, and that's why this integrated distribution framework is really so important. I mean, because that is the, the framework by which I think we can produce and create really large-scale partnerships that will allow these economies um, to, to achieve universal electrification, firstly, more quickly because it's so urgent, more cost-effectively because resources are precious, and more impactfully because we'll really focus on serving productive needs of the economy. Well, I think this discussion shows that it's not just powering our homes, but communicating with the outside world, lighting streets for better commerce, and helping business operate. Electricity really the foundation on which modern communities and commerce run and thrive. So um, something no one should have to do without. Ashvin Dayal, head of the Rockefeller Foundation's Global Power and Climate Initiative, and Rob Stoner, Deputy Director for Science and Technology at the MIT Energy Initiative. Thank you for joining us. Back to the Washington Post. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Francis Steed Sellers of the Washington Post. And very much looking forward to taking this conversation about energy to the local level with two mayors, two US mayors, who have been leading the charge for renewable, sustainable energy. That's John Mitchell of New Bedford, Massachusetts, who's also the chair of the Energy Commission at the US Conference of Mayors, and San Licado of San Jose, California. A very warm welcome to you both. Thank Great you, Francis. We're delighted to have you. Let me start with you, if I may, Mayor Licado. Um, San Jose is one of the largest cities that's got an all-electric mandate in the works. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about what that means for your consumers, both residents and businesses? Well, for us, the important thing was first making sure we could green our grid because if we're going to push folks toward using electric over gas, we need to make sure the sources of electricity uh, are also green. So 
we adopted a community choice energy program a couple years ago, became the largest city in the country to do so, that really enables our residents and businesses to choose their source of electricity. What that's done is really shifted us considerably. We're now consuming with 330,000 uh, users now across more than a million residents, uh, consuming about 86% of our electricity is GHG free, gonna be 92% next year. So that's a really important first step is greening the grid as, as John's doing out in Ed Be New Bedford. The second step now is then pushing uh, economic activity onto the grid from gas, whether in, in our case in San Jose, that meant electrifying uh, our buses at the airport, electrifying train systems, and then of course, electrifying buildings. And so we were the largest city in the country to pass an all electric mandate on new construction of buildings to really try to, again, push the economy toward this much greener grid. Uh, we had initial challenges, certainly. We know that there are some new technologies that need to be tested and so forth. So we needed to give folks time to make those adjustments. But we think the development communities really come along uh, and they appreciate that they can actually save a lot of cost up front and not having to install all that gas infrastructure. What does this do for um, energy costs, electricity costs for your average consumer there in San Jose? Uh, well, actually, through the San Jose Clean Energy Initiative, we're able to provide uh, electricity, procure electricity at a cost slightly below the cost of the incumbent investor-owned utility, PG&E. And we're able to do that because we're not burdened with legacy contracts that those investor-owned utilities have from decades ago when clean energy, which much more costly today, we're able to procure solar and actually we're investing in new solar generation at a much lower cost than they were 15 years ago. And just before we move over to, to Mayor Mitchell, talk to me just a briefly about community choice energy aggregation and what that means in your community. And I'm sorry, Francis, that was for me, not for John, just to be clear. Yeah, just, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so uh, typically the way it's, it's done out in California, <laughs> we have investor-owned utilities uh, that procure, generate uh, electricity, purchase that uh, electricity in, in, in large wholesale contracts, and then distribute it. Uh, we've essentially taken over the wholesale uh, generation business from PG&E here in San Jose and other cities throughout Northern California have done as well. We now have about 10 million Californians that are benefiting in some way from community choice energy programs. So we procure the energy, uh, the investor-owned utility, owns the wires and they distribute it uh, and we're able to procure it at a much lower cost and we're able to reap those savings publicly that we can then reinvest in energy savings in various ways for example reducing costs for our residents to be able to go solar or uh, being able to invest in more innovative technologies for example using hydrogen uh, for fuel cells. Uh, Mayor Mitchell, if I may come to you now, you, as I said, are the uh, chair of the Energy Committee on the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Um, you met in July, I believe. What were some of the key takeaways from that, from a sort of um, countrywide perspective, as we move towards uh, more renewable and sustainable forms of energy? Yeah, so thanks for the question, Francis, and just and thanks for having me. And I uh, just want to give a shout out to Sam Licardo, who's been such a fabulous uh, leader in this space uh, among the, the biggest cities in America. Um, so, uh, so we're we're at an interesting point now in, in the country. Obviously, with the presidential tran uh, transition going on, uh, over the last few years, despite the lack of attention 
to uh, reducing uh, the carbon footprint of, of every city and town, large and small, across um, uh, across the country on, on the part of the federal government. Um, we have seen cities make progress still. Uh, we are at a point now where you know, the vast majority of cities have made uh, the transition to LED lighting. They've retrofitted um, uh, many of their major uh, municipal buildings and have reduced waste and have done all the things at the at the municipal level that we uh, expect uh, mayors to be to be doing, uh, despite the countries opting out of uh, of Paris. But we're at a point now where what we're seeing, based on uh, U.S. Conference of Mayors surveys, is that uh, mayors want to do more still. They are prepared to do it. Um, and whether it's in uh, the generation side to going forward with more solar or in the uh, in efforts to reduce consumption uh, by retrofitting buildings or transitioning to uh, to electric uh, vehicles in their municipal fleets or promoting uh, similar practices in the in the private sector, we're ready. But uh, we need uh, a federal partner. Uh, to uh, to accelerate those efforts, and, and I think uh, so. It is timely that a new administration is is coming in. Um, you had on the earlier segment uh, former uh, Secretary of Energy Meniz, uh, who uh, was was great with cities, uh, and he understood that the federal government could be a a, a very uh, constructive partner uh, in ad advancing our efforts, whether it was in uh, grant through grant programs that. Uh, that uh, it increased the capacity of especially smaller and mid-sized cities to understand how to uh, to reduce their footprints to the facilitation of uh, the energy efficiency and conservation block grants, which is something that uh, will be before uh, Congress uh, very very soon. So we're we're at an auspicious time right now, but there has to be uh, okay a, a thorough federal. Uh, particip uh, willingness to participate at this point, and, and so we're obviously hopeful that the, the new Biden administration will be there with us. So uh, thank you for talking. Uh, could you also talk to me a little bit about New Bedford? You've been a leader in solar and offshore energy. Could you tell us what lessons you have learned um, locally that has uh, informed your discussion on this broader national level? Well, right. So, so a few years ago, we saw the the opportunity to um, establish ourselves as a leader in energy efficiency and conservation, as uh, as having uh, multiple benefits. Obviously, uh, there's the potential to uh, for for us to save on on electricity costs. So we we dove right into uh, the development of of solar on in municipal buildings um, as well as in um, public spaces, especially in former uh, landfills, including one Superfund site. We had, at one point, uh, the Wall Street Journal said that we had, um, New Bedford had more installed uh, municipal solar capacity per capita than any city in the continental U.S. I guess Honolulu beat us, but they have a little more sunshine than New Bedford, uh, so it wasn't exactly fair, but uh, but we, we made a lot of progress in uh, in the waste space, we doubled our recycling uh, rate by converting to compressed natural gas garbage trucks uh, that were automated and, and that really uh, boosted recycling and get, got trash off the street. Uh, we had um, built up the largest electrical vehicle fleet in Massachusetts. And, you know, we promoted this a greener ethic in the city through our efforts um, because we 
take even in a city of 100, only 100,000, uh, we take, uh, we want to cultivate the, the idea that we, um, we should be seizing responsibility um, in our corner of the world for um, uh, reducing our, our, uh, our carbon footprint and, um, and doing our part to combat climate change. At the same time, uh, New Bedford, which is the largest commercial fishing port in the United States, is, is pivoting in the direction of offshore wind. The offshore wind industry is going to uh, arrive in earnest, uh, we believe, in the next couple of years, uh, arrive from Europe where it's been a maturing industry for the last quarter century. And so there will be a big ramp up of that. And New Bedford is the closest industrial port to uh, many of the places where wind farms are to be built. And so, you know, those efforts with respect to offshore wind, advancing the, the wind industry as it's just getting here um, is, uh, again, all, all of a piece. We want to be seen as a place not that's older and, and industrial and gritty, but forward-leaning, green, progressive. And it's in that, in that way, it certainly helps the city's brand and, and makes our the residents feel like they, they're, they're part of something bigger. Thank you. And Melocado, I believe your city council is about to vote on a natural gas ban, maybe December the 1st, with a very few exceptions. What's that going to mean for your city? How will it affect the grid? Well, certainly we know it puts more demands on the grid. And so we really have to focus on resilience as that's been a big challenge for us with wildfires and power safety shutoffs and other issues that we've had out here in the grid. And so it really means uh, we need to push uh, the regulators and certainly investor-owned utilities to make the investments they need to make to provide a resilient grid. Uh, as I think many cities are moving toward electrification, I think that's going to be an enormous focus for us because, frankly, the grid hasn't caught up with where a lot of cities are. And look at the great work that John's doing out in New Bedford. Uh, it's certainly a leading effort, but there are many cities following that path. And so we're going to need a really national strategy around grid resilience uh, that hadn't emerged from the last administration. Right. Mayor Mitchell, um, what does your experience in New Bedford tell you about these innovations in terms of job creation? Well, certainly in the offshore wind space, that's, that is going to be the source of literally tens of thousands of jobs on the East Coast in the next few years. And, um, you know, the, the job creation uh, potential is uh, a, obviously a strong rationale for uh, promoting that industry in addition to its, um, its climate change benefits. Um, but we also know that even at the municipal level for the, for instance, for the solar uh, projects that we've done, it's created a number of local jobs for, uh, for folks who, um, especially during a time of uh, right now of, of economic uncertainty, it's offering uh, the possibility for, for jobs at, at good wages and uh, both among installers as well as um, assemblers of, of, uh, of the solar parks that are, that are continuing to be built here. Um, but we also know that by reducing electricity costs, it, it benefits all businesses. And, um, you know, some businesses obviously are more, industries are more energy intensive than others, but the, the more that we can drive down costs while being greener um, certainly helps everybody. The healthier we are, the lower we can uh, reduce uh, the cost of energy as a major input. You know, the more likely it is that, that jobs will be created. Thank you. I have a question here from our audience that I would like to read to you. It comes from Pete Bull from New York, who asks, 
what is the forecast for battery storage innovations that could lower the costs of solar for residential and business alike? And Melicata, why don't we start with you? I understand that San Jose has set ambitious goals when it comes to building standards. Yeah, you know, I think everyone is hoping and, and waiting for battery storage technology to evolve quickly. The good news is it has been evolving quickly because we need those costs uh, to come down dramatically to make battery storage more realistic for the creation of microgrids that would rely entirely on renewables like solar uh, and then be able to store the energy uh, locally in a distributed way uh, to obviously reduce dependence on the grid. In fact, we're actually building a microgrid right now uh, with Google in the, in the center of our city uh, that we hope will be a great example for cities throughout the country. Uh, that will provide resilience and obviously uh, if we're relying entirely on renewables like solar, uh, then we won't be emitting any greenhouse gas emissions. That's the gold standard. We need batteries to come along quite a bit further. And so in the meantime, we're going to need some bridge technologies to be able to develop those microgrids that are going to be essential for us to really achieve our, our renewable future. And Mitchell, maybe you could talk to me specifically about New Bedford and then talk about this issue um, again across the U.S. from your perch at the uh, U.S. Conference of Mayors. Yeah, I, I think well, I think it's the same here as it is in San and San Jose, and and San is exactly right. It is uh, battery storage in many ways is the the holy grail of uh, renewables in the future. If we can, uh, if, it, if it can be done efficiently, um, it, it will open up all sorts of new opportunities for uh, distributed energy systems. I, I will just add, add, I agree with everything that Sam said. I would just add one other point that we are reminded of the need for um, for renewable uh, distributed energy uh, by way of microgrids every time we've had a natural disaster in this country. If you think about the, the set of hurricanes that hit the East Coast just uh, a couple of years ago um, and some of the some of the uh, disasters that that um, happen as a result of tragedies that happen as a result of uh, the loss of electricity to critical facilities like hospitals and nursing homes and uh, and other facilities. Uh, you think of that if those places had access to microgrids that were sourced by, by solar or, or wind that it would have literally saved, might have literally saved lives. And so, um, you know, it makes us more resilient. At, um, the microgrids with effective battery storage would make us more resilient and uh, along several dimensions, I think. Yeah, that brings me to a question for uh, Malacado about the partnership you just, or the, the, the customer ownership of um, PG&E, which I think is a project you've talked about. What does that look like in California? Is it a blueprint for the rest of the country? Uh, well, the, the truth is the rest of the country is actually well ahead of us on this. Uh, there are about 900 customer owned utilities throughout the country. Typically, they're pretty small utilities, often rural. Uh, and so we were proposing creating the largest customer owned utility in the country here uh, by essentially trying to take over PG&E uh, with the ownership of the customers. Uh, frankly, we did not succeed through the latest battles. Uh, the company's been successful in retaining uh, corporate and shareholder ownership uh, through the last bankruptcy. Uh, you know, the good news is we know that they're pushing uh, in some ways to do to correct some of the sins in the past. And some of the sins I mean are, for example, failing to invest sufficiently in grid resilience and which results in, of course, the wildfires and the enormous safety uh, hazards that have really devastated communities out here with wildfires. Uh, but 
Uh, we also know the bad news is that this is a, a company that's already still teetering. Uh, they have an enormous amount of debt. They may be back in bankruptcy again, and I suspect we'll be back in the legislature urging them to uh, return control of the company to customers. Uh, there's actually been some legislation that's passed that could make this easier for us uh, in the meantime. And so uh, we are waiting, uh, ready. Uh, we've got more than 200 local public officials that have signed up said, saying we're ready to push. Uh, we think it's time for uh, customers to own the utility that they're paying for. So are there other specific regional models you're looking at, Malacato, when you talk about this? You said other parts so of the country we, were ahead of you. But. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the rural cooperative has been a model of utilities that has existed for, you know, for decades. And uh, what we're learning about it is that first, they, they actually have access to lower cost of capital than investor-owned utilities do. Uh, so when they need to make those safety investments and the resiliency investments and the investments in you know, microgrids, for example, uh, they can do so by going to capital markets at lower cost. Uh, and they're not obligated to be paying shareholders dividends and returning uh, large returns to shareholders in, in, in share prices. And they're also not paying executives quite the same price uh, as or, or the same salaries that many of those investor-owned utilities are. And so we think there's a lot of efficiencies in the old model that probably need to be explored more. I do want to talk to you both about the enormous changes we've been through this year and all of our cities across the country have suffered. And maybe, Mayor Mitchell, you could talk to me about the impact of COVID on your city, New Bedford particularly, and also on the energy sector. Well, it's, um, you know, it's been a struggle here as it has been everywhere else. Um, you know, New Bedford, um, you know, uh, relatively speaking, has a large industrial workforce. As I mentioned, we're, we are the, the largest commercial fishing port in the country, but uh, we're also the center, the largest center of seafood processing uh, in the United States. And so as a result, uh, a, a big portion of our workforce um, is not in any position uh, to work remotely. If you, you know, if your job is on a factory floor or on the deck of a scalloper in the North Atlantic, uh, Zoom doesn't do you a whole lot of good. And so that means we had a lot of people, uh, as we still do, um, going to work. Um, and so that certainly raised um, the degree of difficulty here higher than I think most places. Uh, we had uh, large work uh, workforces in, in buildings uh, not taking uh, any time off as a result of the pandemic. Um, so. We had to take uh, a number of steps to um, to mitigate risk. We put in, in place a set of uh, workforce um, uh, uh, workplace uh, safety precautions, or sort of an OSHA-like set of rules that early on separated folks out on uh, uh, in uh, especially in, in seafood processing plants. And we looked at the, the experience of many cities in the Midwest that had meat packing plants and, and, and we envisaged a similar scenario here. And so we tried to get out ahead of that. And I think we, we did successfully. We didn't have any major outbreaks in those plants. We did some, um, we took some steps to uh, prophylactically test the fishing crews before they went out to, to, to sea. Uh, we, um, you know, we also did a few other things that were a little bit different from everyone else. We, uh, we're, we happen to be 
the, 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 the city that has one of the largest suit manufacturers in the country, uh, Joseph Abood, um, which you know sort of took it on the chin with the pandemic. There aren't too many people buying men's suits uh, these days. Uh, but they retooled to make masks, and uh, we entered into an agreement with them in which they would make um, masks for all of our city residents um, that we gave out for free. So I think we're the first city in the country uh, to have done that. We've distributed uh, roughly 140,000 masks uh, at this point through a number of distribution areas. And I think this, the, that pervasiveness of mask wearing here has certainly uh, helped our cause. Um, so a number of things that we've, we've, we've done along the way. Uh, like that to try to just get out ahead of the virus. We still, I mean, it, like as, as it is in San Jose, as it is everywhere, there's still a, a, a ways to go. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, um, we're, we're hopeful uh, about the vaccine. It's a light at the end of the tunnel, but uh, vaccines plural, but, you know, we all know that's a long tunnel uh, at this point. Malika, thank you very much. And Malikado, I think we have time for just one last question. And tell me about San Jose briefly, if you can. Um, the impact of COVID, you went under a new partial lockdown, I believe, or you, or you are just about to. It was announced yesterday. Yeah. What impact is that having in your city and more broadly on this question of um, energy and renewables? I'm afraid well, we have to I be quick. What we're seeing is certainly the problems are in the cities, but the solutions are as well. Uh, you know, if you talk about energy, uh, 70% of GHG emissions come from cities, and we see you know, innovators like John in New Bedford that are really leading the way. Similarly, I think with COVID, I think we're seeing a lot of really interesting innovations emerge from cities. We were the first city in the country to, uh, to, to mandate an eviction moratorium. Uh, in LA, they're testing uh, using uh, really rapid, low-cost antigen testing in a way that I think could be really transformative if we're able to broadly adopt it in a way that can help us predict outbreaks in advance. Uh, you know, what we're seeing in cities throughout the country is folks are set, stepping up. A lot of mayors are really willing to take risks because they know the consequences are too great if they don't. And I hope that now with a new federal administration, we're going to have a president and uh, an administration that's going to embrace the innovation that's happening in cities throughout the country to address these crises. Malicato. Mayor Mitchell, thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you, Francis. Well, it was delightful to have you. I'm very pleased to, to, have, to have learned about your two cities. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.